Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Terrell. Hi, I'm Terrell. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I'll pass around pictures uh, so you can see the physical manifestations of the disease. You don't get to see the mental manifestations of the disease. Thank God. Um, you know, um, there's these are my pictures. Oh, I should qualify. My top weight is somewhere around 325 pounds. And I have um, 40 years of abstinence. So... Um, as you said in the podcast, I'm an opinionated O-timer, and so I have opinions, and just so be it. You know, just the way it is. Um, there's also a picture of, their, of me at my lowest weight, which is about 160, which is about 30 pounds less than I weigh now. And um, I thought I was fat. In all those pictures, at the time, I thought I was... Well, actually, when I was 325 pounds, I would stand in front of a mirror and go like, like at, at school and go like, I don't understand how the kids could think I'm, no, I'm fat. But I mean, literally, it, you know, like, how do they know I'm fat? And if you see the picture, you'll go like, it's really obvious the reason why I was fat. I mean, that I was fat. And uh, then when I was thin, people would say, oh, you know, you're, you're thin. And go like, why don't you understand that I'm fat? Right? Like, I mean, that's the disconnect that this disease causes us as compulsive readers. I mean, we, it's, it really is a threefold disease. Um, a little bit of what it was like. I mean, first of all, I want to thank everyone for coming out in this cold night. I mean, Lord, we're not used to this in Southern California. And you must really want to be abstinent. Or you really you're looked at your sponsor and said, she's taking a candle, I better get my ass there. Um, or, you know, who, who knows? I, like, I was sitting there thinking, like, Gosh, it'd be nice if I had some of that extra weight on me right now to stay warm. You know, why don't you be a normal body size tonight? Um, but I don't get to pick, choose that way. Um, anyway, so I have about 30 minutes to tell you um, what it's like. And um, I always like to say this. There's a format that I have to follow, and it's in the big book. And it basically means that I am to tell you what it was like so you know that I'm a compulsive overeater. So when I talk to you about the solution, you know what I'm talking about, that I'm not preaching from high. I, don't have, I didn't study this in uh, you know, a, book, a textbook besides the AA big book or our literature. But I didn't study it, I, that I really am one of you and that I was a compulsive overeater who literally was... I mean, I was age 17 the first time I came in, and I, I was hopeless. I was literally a hopeless kid at 325. Um, I had, um, the thought occurred to me I was going to graduate high school, and the, the thought occurred to me I just wasted four years of high school because I was fat. I'm going to go off to college, and I'm going to waste four years of college because I'm fat, and then I'm going to live the rest of my life. I'm going to waste the rest of my life because I'm fat. And so, by the way, that's a compulsive reader thought. That's not a normal thought. But the way it's a compulsive reader thought 
is because, see, our entire existence is based upon what my body size is. That's how good of a day I'm going to have today. Like, I mean, I kept a journal for several years in college, and at the top was the date and my weight, and that would determine what my, how, how the day was, right? What was my weight? Because that was, that's, that's where I get my self-esteem, or my lack of self-esteem, because I could use my weight as a tool to boost myself up, or as a tool to beat myself down. There is no, um, um, I guess, neutral ground when it comes to weight for me. Um, so, um, I was born to this alcoholic family, and so I was kind of like, I have the ism, what I call the ism, and for the ism ran in my family as uh, heroin addiction, compulsive spending, sexual addiction, um, Al-Anon, the ism, which is the, the brain, the, the, like, I got to do something to fix, to stop the, the hurt. I got to do something to, to, to not be me. And I was running from me because me was not good. I knew me wasn't good. And so um, at age four, I discovered a bicycle, and that made me forget about Terrell for a second. Or for maybe a minute. Maybe that first fudgesicle lasted longer than that. But when I ate the fudgesicle, that this kind of sense of relief came over me. And I was like... And that's age four. Maybe age five. Um, and since I come from this alcoholic family where it's like, take this, do something, fix it, don't, don't feel that feeling... Like, we, like, don't tell the neighbors everything you know. Like, all that stuff that I was grew, grew up with. Like, you know, like, like I was, like, we were stepchildren in the community. We were stepchildren in life. We were, you know, the, we were the, even though we, we didn't have any responsible reason to feel that way, other people have been in the same circumstances, same socioeconomic background, and not feel that way. But my family, with the ism, felt that way, and it got passed on down, and I can look at, you know, like one of the greatest things I did was I looked at a family history of the disease in my family. You know, my mom did the best she could. My dad did the best he could. My grandparents did the best they could. My great-grandparents probably did the best they could. If I could probably find that one person who started this whole chain of events, you know, then maybe I could go talk and blame them. But there are several generations where this ism was there and it just got passed down. So I was drowning myself out um, by having what I called the menage a trois, which was TV, food, and me. And I would go to school and I would, you know, walk around with my head bowed because I wouldn't look at you. Because if I look at you, I would curse you. And people would say, like, oh my God, I saw you talking to Terrell. If you're going to be friends with Terrell, I can't be friends with you. So I did you this. I did you the favor of not talking to you, of of bowing my head. And suicide was a daily thought, and it was literally because I, it, it, I was going. Basically, I was doing you the favor if I was going to kill myself, because if because I knew you would be better off if I was dead. Not that I was better off dead, but you would be better off dead. That's the ism. That's the ism. And so there I am at 325, hopeless, and I walk into my first OA meeting. And 
it was a lot more women at that time. It was a lot of middle-aged middle housewives. And, I mean, they, I, at my first meeting, they, you know, I kind of was going like, okay, here I am, uh, you know, borrowed the parents' car to go to a meeting. But at my first meeting, there was this man who was sharing, and he said he had lost 100 pounds, and he was keeping it off. And it gave me that one thing I didn't have ever before, and that was hope. That I didn't, maybe I didn't have to live the rest of my life being fat. I wasn't going to waste the rest of my life being fat. Because I believed this man. My parents had gone to AA, so I knew enough about program and 12-step program that I knew that if he was pitching from the podium, that it, he was being honest, that he wasn't just lying. And so I literally was like, oh. And so that gave me the hope to, to come back. Now, you've talked about steps. They were for my sick alcoholic parents. They weren't for me. I'm, all I need to do is lose a little weight and get a few friends. Right? That's, that was my issue. My issue was I was lonely and I was fat. And if I wasn't fat, I wouldn't be lonely. And so, therefore, all my, so, all my problems would be solved. Anyone relate to that thought? That's, that's the compulsory, that's the ism again. If I can only get thin enough, then everyone will love me, and then I will love myself. And so then it was like, so you talked about God, and I was raised religious, um, where I went to Sunday school um, two years in a row without missing a Sunday, and I had prayed to God every night, God, please my parents stop drinking and fighting, and God, when I wake up, let me be thin. And I wake up the same weight I was when I went to bed. So I got the gig. Um, God was punishing me for all my evil thoughts and, and deeds. Now, when I told you that my life consisted really just, I would go to school, be picked on mercilessly, now it would be called bullying, but it was called Terrell the Barrel, and then I would come home and I would clean the house. And if, I, if the house was clean, my parents would, would drink and they went sight. I'm a bit of an Al-Anon, by the way, um, or an ACA, whatever you want to call it, um, CODA, whatever, anyway. Um, and, th- and then I'd watch TV, and that was my life. But I was such a horrible person that God was punishing me with, with these uh, drunk parents and with laying 325 pounds. So I couldn't do the step three because I couldn't turn my will and my life to care of an asshole like that. I mean, why, who would want to do that, right? And that's why I always say, if you've got a problem with step three, just fire that asshole. Um, and but you folks, oh, and you talked about a four step and, and being you know searching fearless, honest inventory. I had deep dark secrets I couldn't tell no living soul, so I wasn't going to tell them. So I couldn't do the four steps. So I couldn't work the program. But you offered me a gray sheet of paper that had some food plan on it. And I took that gray sheet of paper, and I lost to probably about 125, 150 pounds, about six months, um, because I was a 17 year old boy. And I would stop binging, and I was working on a shipping and loading dock with mag, lifting mag rims. So I was physically, I mean, physically active all day long, and really cut back on my food. And as we don't like to admit in these rooms, but it's, it's, that's just the natural course of events. If you eat less calories or burn more calories, you lose weight. Our body's like a furnace. Whatever we put in, we don't burn, we store. And we all hate that. And that's just the way life is. So I was burning more calories than I was consuming, and I lost weight. Such is life. But I didn't do all those things that made me seek excess food. So I had to go back out and eat again. And that's the curse that we have in Ovaries Anonymous. If we do not seek, deal with the things that make us seek excess food, you will eat again. 
I guarantee you that. You will eat again. Because we don't eat because it tastes good. We don't eat because I'm hungry. We don't eat because, oh, I don't know. We eat because it's, we like the effect that it gives us. We like, I mean, is this not a perfect pajamas, like sweats, binge night? I mean, this is the perfect binge night, right? Like, you're, oh, I can't go out. I'm going to stay in. Oh, well, it's cold. I'm going to eat some comfort food. This is the perfect binge night. And look at us. We're in an OA meeting. Lord, now that's a miracle right there. Everyone is a miracle right now because the fact that we're not out and going like, oh, and I'm going to go make some pot pies or I'm going to go make popcorn. I'm going to go eat stuff. So anyway, I didn't deal with those things that made me seek excess food, so I had to go back out and eat again. And I got back up to about uh, 250 pounds, something like that. And that's when I was in college. Um, And then I um, dealt with those deep, dark secrets and I came out of the closet. Because um, I was really eating a lot of my sexuality, and I mean, it really was one of those things that that it, it didn't make any if it didn't make any difference if I was straight or gay if I'm 325 pounds. In my thinking, my thinking, because I was I took myself off the market with my weight by being fat, and so it didn't make any difference what my sexual feelings. But I still had them. I was still eating over them, but I was still it didn't make any difference. So it was my it was my protection. And I like to tell the story because this is where a compulsive This is another thing about the ism. When I was coming out of the closet, I went to everyone that was uh, all my all my friends at college, going like, "Do you think I'm gay? What do you think? Do you think I'm gay? What do you think?" And I love to tell that story because what that is is I was going around checking with everybody in the room if it was okay if I, if they thought I was gay because if they if, if if it was okay with them to, that I was gay going to be okay with me. That's, that's the ism. That's the thinking that leads us to seek, seeking excess food, right? Um, I like to, I mean, you, you probably heard this from yourself or you heard it from sponsees, whatever. Like, I'm the type of compulsive reader that most, every compulsive reader I know is kind of like this. For whatever action I do, I need about five excuses or reasons why I did that. Because if I did move my hand this way, and you made a judgment of it, I have a good reason why I did that. And if you said, oh, that's not a good enough reason, well, it was another reason. So I live my life with with constant reasons or excuses for my mere existence, for my mere movement of hands. That takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of mental craziness of going like, well, what what will they think? What will you think? What will they think? So I was constantly have to defend every action I did. And so that was how you folks found me the second time. I was at, at my thinnest at 160. Um, I was doing what I call my donut diet, which is I don't eat anything all day long, except nine or ten donuts at night. And um, I, I dealt with that. And the reason why I eat nine or ten donuts at night, because I would go out dancing at a discotheque. It was the late 70s. And I would, um, to deal with all the rejection I felt, I had to stop and get my, my fix. I had to get stop and get my donuts. And sometimes I made decisions like, yeah, I'd rather go get my donuts than try and stand here and meet somebody. Nothing we've ever made a sacrifice like that. It's like, oh, well, I'll pass up sex or whatever. I'll make a passive relationship so I can have my donuts. But that was my, I was, I would stop and get my donuts. And so I was maintaining my weight at 160 pounds, which is where that boat picture is. Um, uh, me as the shirtless, um, and I would maintain my weight that way. 
Um, I was told by, a, by my eye doctor, um, who was fitting me for contact lenses, he said, um, if I don't um, stop eating sugar, I will be blind within a year due, due to hypoglycemia or high uh, diabetes, which runs in my family. Um, and uh, because he was trying to fit me for contact lenses, he can't get a prescription right. So my prescription is all over the board. Like, every week it was changing. And so um, I then went to Europe, and I was traveling in, alone in Europe, and I was traveling with a, a guy I was dating for a while, and then I was dating with... Tra- like, I, I, before program, I didn't deal with interpersonal relationships, right? I wasn't really good at that. So the best thing I know how to deal with all those fears and anxieties was to go eat a chocolate cake or go eat a chocolate bar. So I, was, I binged my way through Europe and put on 30 pounds in six weeks. And while I was binging my way through Europe, I remember thinking out loud in my head, um, I can still see. When things start to go gray, that's when I'll stop. That's my bottom. I'm going to sacrifice my eyesight for chocolate. Just one more bite. And it was never for a binge, because we never sacrifice. We never... I mean, now that we plan the binge, we're going like, oh yeah, where we think the binge all the way through to the next morning when we wake up with that greasy tongue and that greasy feeling, and we think it all the way through. But most times we just kind of think it through the, that first moment of excitement. And like, oh, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get that. And so I wasn't really doing the binge, I was just having another bite of chocolate. I just another bite of chocolate. And so um, after I came back from Europe and I called my sister who was in program, and I said, sis, I need to dry out. We didn't have eating disorder units back then. So I said, I need to dry out. I, I tried kicking sugar in Europe, and I got physically ill, and I can't do it. She says, I've got company. This is like on a Friday. She says, I've got company this weekend, but I'll take you to a meeting on Sunday. And so I, um, I knew what to do. I got out the big book and started reading the big book from cover to cover. And that kept me absent from my first meeting. So I went to my first meeting, um, and it was led by a man who was being a moderate mealer. And he told me, and I found out at that meeting that there was meetings every night at the Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center. And the reason why I say that is because when I was out there trying to maintain my weight in the donut diet, the reason why OA would not work for me again was because I was gay, was because um, I couldn't do that food plan again, and it's a bunch of housewives. And so all my excuses that I had to keep me from program were my excuses that had no basis in fact. So any time that you can come with an excuse to stay away from program, that's your excuse. It's not us. We're not telling you that. We really say, welcome home, welcome home. Here. Everyone's welcome here. We don't judge. Because if, we, if you, we judge you, you judge us. And you get to go like, oh my God, you were, you were willing to sacrifice your eyesight for chocolate? That's crazy. Right? That's insane. So we, don't, we look at everyone with open arms here. So there's no excuses that can keep you from overzonomous except for you. And that's the scary part, right? Because that means, you know, I always to call it the silver tongue devil. It's called the silver tongue devil, which I don't know if, I mean... I know, maybe my, my Baptist upbringing. But the silver-tongued devil, and the reason why I believe it's a silver-tongued devil is because it's me. I know exactly what I, I, know exactly what I need to, what to say to make me feel like shit. I know, I, I, my, I, know what, I know my buttons, right? 
So, so I went to meetings. I went to like meetings every night, pretty much, and I got his food sponsor, and I started food sponsoring, and I um, had a spiritual experience where my spiritual experience was literally I was walking through a park, um, and um, it, it was after uh, after a meeting, and I heard this small, still voice come over and says, "Terrell, you're going to be okay. I love you. I'm as much right to be here as that tree." It was the first of my life I, I felt like I wasn't breathing your air. It's the first of my life I felt like that that food that feeling I got with food with that fudgesicle where I went like, oh, I felt like I could breathe again. And so with that small, still voice, that was my spiritual experience. And so um, I was doing this for a couple months. I had lost the weight I gained in Europe. I was back down to about 165, something like that. Um, and I went to my sponsor and said, you know, I'm sick and tired of going in this room full of fat-ass people talking about their problems. I'm sick and tired of being told what I can and cannot eat. And a Friday night, I went to be out dancing with the boys in Palm Springs. I, went, I don't want to be in damn, some damn meeting at Cedars-Sinai Hospital. And I was done with you people. Because, see, you people weren't helping me get where I wanted to go, which was to be, to get a few more friends and be thin. Well, I'd already gotten thin, but I would just need to get a few more friends. And OA was not the chic place to be to go get this cool group of A-listers that I wanted to hang out with. So I was done with you so I could go hang out with the cool people. And so my sponsor said some magic words. He said, Terrell, remember, you're leaving us, we're not leaving you. If you don't want to come back, we'll be here. I said, thank you for sharing. I didn't say it out loud, but I thought that. <laughs> and I driving home from my sponsor's house going, okay, God, you and me. Because I, I was spiritual. Okay, God, you and me. Well, I'm going to eat what I want, when I want. Oh, my God, you and me. We're going to do this thing. Okay, God, thank you. You know, like I spent, I was living in Long Beach at the time, and I talked the entire time to God about how God was going to help me stay abstinent. And, and I've learned that I don't need to talk to God. I need to listen to God. And if I was too busy talking... I'm not listening. So if maybe if I've listened, I might have heard like, oh boy, you just made a mistake, right? <laughs> like, ooh, what you thinking here? Um, so anyway, um, what happened is I wound up on January 5th, 1979, um, breaking my absence on two pieces of toast. And um, that's my last binge, two pieces of toast. Um, I'm hopelessly addicted to sugar and flour. I'm a donut junkie through and through. Um, it feeds both my addictions of, of wheat and sugar. And so when I ate those two pieces of toast, I saw the donut stand, I was going to get my donuts. And I got really scared. Because I had three months of serenity of working this program and having the spiritual experience. I got really scared. I said, oh, God, please, I cannot do it one more time. Please, God, please help me. I cannot do it one more time. And I went to bed, and I woke up on January 6, 1979, and I've been absent ever since. Um... Now, when I said I cannot do it one more time, it wasn't about weight gain. It was the insanity that comes with the disease. The self-hatred, the self-loathing, the constant state of fear, the constant state of like, oh, what do you think? And what do you think? And, oh my God, did I move my hand wrong? Oh my God, what? Is, that constant, you know, that, that brain that just won't shut up. And it's like, oh my God, please, I just couldn't do it. I can't live my life based upon that. Because I had a few moments, some fleeting moments where I had that serenity and sanity. 
So that's why I'm still abstinent. Because I made a decision 40, over 40 years ago, I can't do it one more time. I can't live that way one more time. Because, see, I maintain my weight on the donut diet. I, I have my weight down. At 160, I was, I was thin. I, this newcomer came up to me one time and said, well, if the donut diet was working, why'd you stop? She didn't, I don't know whether she, she didn't hear my message or not, but it was, it's because I was insane. I was insane. So what this program has given me, it's, this program has given me the, the courage to change. It's shown me the path to change. It's given me, we call it a blueprint for living. We call it like, oh, this is a program. And I kind of get, I really love that concept. This is a program for living. This is how we behave. We don't lie, cheat, or steal. We don't, that we are sensitive people and that we don't really get involved with what people think about us because that's a sensitivity, right? We're just childish. We're immature. That's who we are. It says it in our literature. That's one of our founding principles. It's like, oh, you're just childish and mature. Oh, that's fine. Oh, oh, you hate yourself. Oh, so is everyone else in this program. Moving on. Oh, you think you're, you think you're terminally unique. So is someone else. So is everyone else in this program. Let's keep going. Right? One of the first things I got in my first year of absence was self-acceptance. Because I hated me. I mean, I don't know if you can get the concept of hate. That I could do anything right, and so I came to I came to um, uh, I came to like go like oh okay that I can breathe I can breathe now I got the ten minute warning which means I have ten minutes to tell you what it's like to be abstained for forty years um, first off. Every, a lot of people in this room know, but I, I believe you're a newcomer until you get 10 years of more of abstinence. You can argue with me as much as you want. But it takes about 10 years for, for to have that, that psychic change. Now, we'll get psychic changes earlier. We'll have some psychic changes earlier. But it takes about 10 years to get that shift where you start to go like, oh. And if you're, and I, I think it takes about 10 years because around seven years of abstinence. If you're in that seven-year abstinence range, Bless your heart. It will get better. It will get better. Because after five years, when you get five years of absence, you start going like, oh, what kind of hot stuff here? I got, you know, I got five years, and people are listening to me, and I'm sponsoring, I've got this stuff. And it takes about a couple years, and your ego takes control of that and uses it. And then around seven, eight years, you're pounding on the dashboard of a car going, damn it, I did everything they asked me to do. I wrote those inventories. I read the bit of literature. I did everything they asked for me. I'm still friggin' miserable. I cleaned it up for the tape. Um, <laughs> you know, and those old-timers lied. It doesn't get better. They just want, they just, misery loves company. They want more people up there with them. Those were the words out of my mouth. Now, in, in 40 years... I've gone through a lot of living. Um, let's see. I had a hip replacement, a knee replacement, a bunion surgery. Right now, I've got some allergy issues, and so right now, my skin is itching like nobody's business, but that's okay, you know? That, that makes you want to eat, right? 
I found out I was HIV positive back in the days when you thought maybe you, I would be dead within a year or within a month or two. And that's when, you know, that revolve lover said, you know, if I knew I had like a week or two to live, I would just go binge. That's when I realized if I have a week or two to live, I'm going to abstain so I can feel and experience every beautiful moment of my life as opposed to numb myself out and just miss the last couple of weeks of my life. Because that, for that, that tells that for me, the gift of absence, the beauty of absence is so wonderful. But that also means when you're walking around, like you just feel like you're going to crawl out of your skin because you're in, like you just want to eat so friggin' bad. You just want to friggin' eat. And you just go like, okay, not, not right now. Not right now. Not right now. And that that's, gets us to the point where we go like, oh, I don't care about that. Like, you know, and I'm at that crazy point now where it's like, oh, that's too sweet. That's too rich. Like, yeah, I mean, that, I mean, I, I don't eat sugar and flour, and that's my bottom line absence. I don't eat sugar and I don't eat flour, um, which is why two pieces of toast was a break of my absence. Um, and so I literally go, so let's talk about, about food. Um, there, a food. The solution is not in a food plan. Any food plan will work for you. The solution is not in a food plan. The solution is having a moral psychic change where we think of life differently, where we behave differently. That's what this program is about. This program doesn't say, oh, like, so if you eat A, B, and C, then you're going to find nirvana. Legal, you, you don't eat or you eat A, B, C, or whatever you need to do so you can stay present in the moment so you can grow. Because as compulsive readers, we use food as a tool not to grow. We use it as a way to run away from everything, to put up walls, to stop. And so we have to learn how to put the food down so the walls will come down. And we go like, this hurts, but I'm growing through it. This is uncomfortable, but I know that I will survive this. And that's why I believe that I stopped growing when I picked up food at age four that I was a full-grown four-year-old when I came in the doors of Overeaters Anonymous. And I firmly believe that. That's an opinion. It's not written in the big book anywhere. But guess what? If you want to argue with me, when you get 40 years of abstinence, you can come argue with me. <laughs> That's the way I look at it, right? Once you get 40 years, you can argue with me as much as you want. In the meantime, take it with comfort. When I, the, the concept about being a newcomer at age five, or the newcomer from ten, actually was, I heard from an AA speaker who said five. And I, when she said that, I had about three years of abstinence. And I went like, who does she think she is? she got three years of abstinence. I ain't no a newcomer. But the small, still voice inside of me said, she knows. She knows. So maybe if you heard that small, still voice when I say, when you get 10 years or more of absence, you go like, he knows. <laughs> then you know, like, oh, right. Because one of the biggest character defects we have as compulsive readers is perfectionism. Right? Anyone in this room not have that? <laughs> no. Perfectionism. I have to be perfect. And that's because I am such a piece of shit that I have to do double time to stay, stay current with the rest of the world. What else? I don't know. 
well, it's a nice tool to beat yourself up. I mean, so we in this program said that we have a disease, that we, don't, we are not weak-willed, that we are not um, bad people because we overeat, that we have a disease. The big book says, I cannot judge a compulsory for overeating just as much as I can judge a tuberculosis patient for, for coffee. I, I am a, my food is nowhere near perfect. Uh, my absence has been perfect because if it wasn't perfect, I would have broken it. I have a black and white absence just like alcoholics have. Like, did you drink or did you not drink? So for me, my absence is bottom line, black and white, I don't, I don't eat sugar or flour. Now, that's kind of, I mean, it's kind of nebulous, right? Because it's kind of crazy. I don't eat ketchup, but I eat cocktail sauce for my shrimp. I know that's crazy, right? But that's the way it is. I don't eat ketchup, but I'll have barbecue sauce that I dip in my, uh, the, crazy, right? I know, but that's okay. My absence will kill you. Your absence will kill me. So the bottom line is I go like, okay, so this is where I found my comfort zone with my food where I found serenity and sanity. You know, I don't do more than three trips to, more than two trips to a salad bar. I can eat a jungle and still call it abstinent. But if I have one bite of German chocolate cake, one bite, I broke my absence because that was a conscious decision for me to go seek sugar and flour. And so I said, and it's not the, and I've heard people like who are uh, like really strictly in measure and so forth, and they have that green bean over that they broke their absence. And I talked to someone about this, and she said it wasn't it was who had weighed and measured. Um, she said it's not the fact that you had one green bean over; it's the fact that you broke your commitment, and that's the reason why it was a break. And I was like, oh, I got it. So if I don't commit to one green bean over, then I like okay, that makes sense to me. I, I get that concept. So, for me to have guilt about my food is me acknowledging, the, not acknowledging the fact I'm a compulsive overeater, that I will never have a normal relationship with food. Ever, never, period, end of story. Now, maybe some people might in this room. They might get that recovered, and then maybe they start floating up and, you know, can walk on water. But I'm, I'm not that compulsive overeater. I've had to say, one of my, one of my biggest... One of my most spiritual sayings that I love to use a lot is, oh, well. Oh, well. Now, I mean, but that's very clear, right? If I eat one bite of German chocolate cake, break of absence. The jungle. Oh, well. You know. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not, now, if I gain weight and keep gaining weight, then that's a sure sign that something's going on because that means I'm consuming more calories than my body needs. So I have to be aware of that. Now, the crazy thing that's happened to me when it comes to food is that I now count calories. And that's asinine. That's crazy. For 30-something years, I didn't count calories. But you know the reason why I count calories? Because it holds me accountable. It's accountability. Counting calories don't keep me thin. Counting calories is not the solution to my problems. The solution to my problems is to work a 12-step program. And by the way, if you have a problem with God thing, I'll just throw this out there, I'm an atheist. So moving on from that, now if you want to use that something else as to be, say, oh, I can't do the 12-step program because I'm an atheist, or I don't know if I believe in God. I don't believe in God. But I believe in a higher power. And I believe in a spiritual way of life. And that life 
will lead, keep me from wanting to seek excess food to take the edge off because I'd rather be here and now in the moment and be present because it's not that bad. As much as your head will tell you it is, it's not that bad. Thanks for letting me share.